Hello, Dr. Neil Buttery here. Welcome to episode five of my Lent podcast. It's the fourth Sunday of Lent today, Mid-Lent Sunday. So we're halfway through and really in the thick of it. This Sunday goes under several different names. Mothering Sunday, Rose Sunday, Later Sunday, Refreshment Sunday, which is my personal favourite, and Sunday of the Five Loaves. It gained that name because it's believed that on this Sunday, Jesus' miracle of the loaves and fishes occurred. But today, I'm going to be focusing on Mothering Sunday, and I'll be chatting again to the Right Reverend David Walker, Bishop of Manchester, and I'll be telling you all about a food traditionally made on this day, the delicious Simnel Cake. Then, we're going to look at the effect of fasting on our health. Is it a good or bad thing to put your body through it? And what does the science tell us? Well... I went on a two-week fast to experience it for myself, and we'll find out how I got on later in the show. There's also the small matter of Professor Matthew Cobb's fishy egg cliffhanger from last week. So we're midway through Lent, so it comes as no surprise at all that today is called Mid-Lent Sunday. For those fasting, Lent was now getting very difficult, and we find that there are various activities cropping up every Sunday from now on. Some serious jollying along had to happen to get people over the final few hurdles. A good example of this is the forgotten ritual known as Clipping the Church, which was held on various Sundays throughout spring, but for most it was done on Mid-Lent Sunday. The congregation would link hands, forming a circle all around the parish church, and they would dance gaily to express the joy of Easter. Dancing about in circles around holy places screams of paganism. And indeed, it was thought to be a direct descendant of Lupercalia. Lupercalia was a festival that could be traced back to pagan Rome, where people would sacrifice goats and a young dog. After which, everyone would rush the streets, where the revellers would be joined by youths wearing goatskin thongs. The sacrifice animals were then eaten. Not a barbecue I'd like to attend. You can still buy a puppy dog pie in Painswick, Gloucestershire, but don't worry, the dog meat has now been replaced with marzipan. Traditionally made for today, Simnel cakes are, or were, a familiar sight during Easter time. For those not in the know, they are an enriched fruit cake with marzipan on top and another secret layer within. On top are 11 marzipan balls, and I'll get to those later. If you don't like marzipan, it's probably not the cake for you. But I think it's amazing and it hands down beats a Christmas cake any day. Until quite recently, you didn't see them around that much but I think they're slowly beginning to reappear in bakeries and supermarkets. To find the origin of Simnel cake, you need to go right back to medieval times, where it began life as a yeast-leavened bread, which may or may not have been enriched. This doesn't sound that much like a special bread, you may think, but what made it special is that it was made out of the most expensive flour of the time, white flour. Whole grain wheat was ground in mills, and was then sifted several times by hand in huge sieves. Each time, the sieve was of a finer mesh, so that only the whitest and finest flour remained. It required real graft to make it. Fast forward to the 17th and 18th centuries, and this bread mixture had been swapped for a pudding batter, not too dissimilar to Spotted Dick, enriched with dried fruit, spices and almonds. And it was boiled like a pudding, When cooked, it was wrapped in pastry, glazed with egg, and baked until a good hard crust formed. It was a bit like the Scottish black bun, a traditional Christmas food north of the border served up on Twelfth Night, which is essentially a Christmas pudding stroke cake wrapped in pastry. 
It's only when you get to the tail end of the 19th century that it starts to look anything like something we would recognise today as a cake. Though surprisingly, it's not until the 20th century that the familiar marzipan layers and balls appear. Similar cakes are on our Easter tables less often than 100 years ago. So why not book the trend and have a go at making one yourself? There's a recipe on my blog, BritishFoodHistory.com, if you fancy it. In fact, if you visit the site, have a look at the Lent podcast tab. There you'll find all of the episodes, as well as loads of information about the things done and discussed and cooked in this podcast series. Well, I baked a Simnel cake, and I took it along with me when I went to see David Walker, Bishop of Manchester again, to chat more about Simnel cakes and the day they are traditionally made, Mothering Sunday. Hello. Well, thank you very much for speaking to us again. It's a pleasure. Uh, we're going to talk about Mothering Sunday. I brought Simnel cake, traditionally wow. served on the Mothering Sunday, although people eat it all the time now, really, don't they, throughout Easter. I'm sure you've had many a Simnel cake shoved under your nose during Easter time. My wife makes a fantastic one, yeah. Oh, does she? Oh, no, that's <laughs> competition. No, no. Well, I'm going to slice some... You don't have any allergies or anything, do you? I, I don't have out. any allergies. <laughs> you have to check these things these days. <laughs> I'm just going to cut into it. A Simnel cake is basically a fruit cake with some marzipan on it, but um, there's some important symbolism going on in a Simnel cake, isn't there? Yeah. Um, I mean, once I slice into it, would you just mind letting, letting everybody know what, what that is? Sure. Well, the, the top of a Simnel cake is a special bit because there's a kind of marzipan layer. And then on top of that, you will see usually 11 or 12 little marzipan balls. And they represent the disciples of Jesus. So the reason why the numbers may vary is it's whether you include one for Judas, the disciple who betrayed Jesus, or, or Matthias who replaced him. And sometimes we've even seen it done with a, a big... Um, marzipan ball in the center of the Mm -hmm. top of the cake to represent jesus himself standing in the middle of the circle of his disciples but yes there's the simnel cake it's a sign of the disciples of jesus reminder that we're we're not on our christian journey alone that we today are followers of those early disciples and just as they gathered together uh, and are represented on the top of the cake so we gather together in our churches Mm -hmm. in our places of worship uh, in our families in our homes uh, to be that group of disciples. We're not just individual loners following Jesus. And, uh, and do you like Simnel cakes? I, <laughs> I love most sweet things, and I'm going to well, bite into a piece of this now and excellent. tell you just how wonderful it is. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Thinking about Lent and giving things up for Lent, I would... Oh, cake would be so hard. A knob of butter goes a long way. Mm. That's the thing that I would find most difficult. Giving up meat, I don't eat much meat. Um, I try to eat fish if I'm going to eat any mm-hmm. yeah, any animals, but oh man, not having butter. <sighs> well, this is very good. I don't know who made it, but it's an excellent, uh, excellent it's cake. Made with my own fair hands. Ah, multi-talented. <laughs> Thank you very much. Similar cakes actually haven't been like this for very long. About a hundred years. Yeah, yeah. I mean traditions come and go I mean, to be honest if you go back much further than that any such rich cake would only have been possible for a very small minority of the population indeed anyway so so it it, it does presume upon a certain level of affluence that uh, 
that at this time of the year in the early spring that you've got enough dried fruit mm-hmm. and uh, other things and uh, eggs and the like that you're going to be able to, sure. to make really quite a rich cake. Yeah, I kind of like, because if you go really far back, Simnel comes from the word Simnus, which just means white, a white mm-hmm. flour. Mm. So back then, the most expensive bready, cakey thing you could get was basically white bread because it was such a big process to refine it and make yes. it white. Yeah. And I kind of like how the Simnel cake kind of reacts in a way because white, uh, white bread flour became quite commonplace. And now we got to up the ante, put some dried mm. fruit in it, put some butter in it, put some eggs in it, add some marzipan to it. So I kind of like that it hasn't stayed still. It's kind of moved with you know, how we progress with our own food and how we, how we find our own food. It kind of, it's kind of put itself up in a slightly higher tier each time. So it kind of pleases me in a way. <laughs> yes, because if you are going to have special foods, they need to be special. And, and say if, if you look at the way diet has changed over, over the centuries, things that we take very much for granted now would have been very special treats not that long ago. I, I still remember as a young boy how uh, tinned pineapple chunks was a real, real speciality. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, whereas nowadays it's, a, it's pretty boring, pretty normal, isn't it? Yeah, well, indeed, yeah, yeah. The ones that... Um, well, it's quite pertinent today. It kind of annoys me. I see. I love the fact that things are seasonal, and sometimes just for a day or maybe a month or a week or something like asparagus. Um, and the one thing that really gets my goat is hot cross buns. You can buy them all year round. I love the fact that you have to wait for Easter yes. time, and now you get them all year round, and it's taken the fun out of it. I agree, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Let's have special foods at special times yeah, of the year to, to I don't punctuate like... that, that rhythm of the year. Otherwise, it, it, one day and one week are much like the next day or the, the previous week. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just really important, just a really important thing to enjoy things mm-hmm. at particular times. The reason I've brought this Simnel cake is it was traditionally given out on Mothering Sunday. Mm-hmm which isn't the same as Mother's Day, although it's the same day. There's a bit of confusion. I was wondering if you might be able to tell us a little bit about what Mothering Sunday is. Yeah, traditionally Mothering Sunday in the Church of England has been a, a Sunday when we think about, uh, about the church as being like a mother, caring for us and, uh, right. and, and supporting and encouraging us. And if you look at the time when churches were growing quite quite rapidly with industrialization in cities like Manchester mm-hmm. and the surrounding towns in the 19th century. The tradition grew up that on Mothering Sunday, mm. rather than uh, perhaps have a service in your own church, uh, people might be invited to go to the church that they that had planted their own church, or okay. perhaps go to the cathedral of the diocese, to the oh, mother church of the whole yeah. of the whole diocese. And, uh, so it's just and a, give a small pilgrimage in a way, isn't a it? Small, a small pilgrimage yeah. and a reminder that we're not... Uh, we're not self-sufficient in our own local congregation, our own local mm-hmm. community, that somebody made the effort at some point to come and create a church here mm-hmm. uh, to, to be the mother to give birth to that sure, church. Sure. Uh, and that's a time to give thanks for that and say either physically by way of a, of a pilgrimage or at least by remembering where this particular church came from, what its origins are. And then, of course, it gets attached to mothering in a sense of our, our own natural mothers, giving thanks mm-hmm. for our own... Uh, Mothers, the mothers who provided care and uh, and looked after us in our in our infancy, mm-hmm. and it became a day in uh, again. We think of the nineteenth century. Lots of uh, of young people, particularly employed in service in in the homes of of the wealthy, 
So mm-hmm. it was an occasion when those servants would be given the day off to go home and see their mother. Oh, okay. even go to church with their mother. Yes. So that tradition there of thinking about your own mother, mm-hmm. uh, again, very much part of that 19th century culture, particularly the large number of people who yeah. were in domestic service. Yeah, yeah, indeed. And uh, is that something that people do now? I think it's still very much the case that uh, that people think of their mothers at that time. So whether it's the kind of Mother's Day, just sending a card mm-hmm. sort of a thing. And interestingly, in some other parts of the world, I think in America they have a Mother's Day, but it's not the same day as we as we have it mm-hmm. in the UK. Mm-hmm. They celebrate it outside of, of Lent. But, yeah, for me, when my mother was alive, usually we would make the effort to... Uh, to take her to a nice restaurant or something, sure. or at least have her to us for a meal on Mothering Sunday as part of giving thanks uh, thanks to her for her mothering of me and my brother when we were little boys. Mm-hmm. And um, do people still make little pilgrimages to other churches or cathedrals? Still? I think that's less so now. Right. I think I think that's that's largely died out because most of our churches have been around sufficiently long that we rather forget where they came from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It probably mattered more in the, that period of huge industrial growth in the Victorian period. A big thanks again to the Right Reverend David Walker, Bishop of Manchester, for explaining the history behind Mothering Sunday. I must say, I was a trifle nervous serving up that simnel cake. I'd never baked for a bishop before. There are lots of fasting diets these days, they seem to be the favoured approach to getting lean and improving your health. There's the 5-2 diet, where you fast for five days and eat normally for two. And there's the similar 4-3 diet. And there's an 8-16 diet, where you fast for 16 hours of the day every day. These approaches are very similar to ways in which religions have approached and do approach fasting. The Black Fast, which is the fast I've been talking about most in this podcast series, was a more extreme version. It was the... Uh, Well, the 6-1 diet, I suppose. Now, we know that there are benefits to reducing our calories. When we fast, we're consuming maybe five or 600 calories a day, which means we're not going to be eating very much fat, sugar, or any other food which is supposedly bad for us. A quick internet search tells us that it can improve heart health, increase weight loss, reduce our chances of getting several types of cancer, and it can prevent us from developing diabetes. But... They're diet and calorie-specific things rather than fasting-specific things. You see, you can still eat 600 calories and be eating all day long on salad or whatever, which doesn't have many calories in it. Now, fasting requires long periods of not eating anything at all. In other words, getting good and hungry. In one study of type 2 diabetes, it was found that regular 24-hour therapeutic fasts reversed it. One subject reversed it after having it for over 20 years. It is worth mentioning, though, that the scientists who did this study declare it not a cure, but a state of remission. Because once you've reversed type 2 diabetes, it can reoccur more quickly, especially when one falters from their diet. Fasting itself apparently fights infection boosts brain function, increases the production of human growth hormone in men, it boosts metabolism, so it increases the rate at which we lose weight. It apparently increases the efficacy of chemotherapy and increases longevity. Indeed, there was a famous experiment where lab mice had different feeding regimes. There were those that could eat whatever and whenever they wanted, but some were only given one meal a day, 
and another just given three opportunities in the day. The two groups that had a fasting regime, on average, lived 11% longer than the control, the eat-whatever-whenever group. The funny thing was, they tested different types of food, foods like processed food and whole grain food, but these had no effect whatsoever. What seemed to be the biggest factor in giving a benefit was the fasting itself, giving your digestive system time off. That's an example of where there's some science to back up a claim, but it's hard to know what is true and what isn't. Nutritional advice and science seem endemically riddled with quacks, making it very hard to know which claims are real. Or at least, which ones have some real hard evidence to back them up, and which ones are just cod's wallop. Well, I decided to take things into my own hands and go on a black fast for two weeks. I wanted to see if any of those things I listed before would happen to me. I also wanted to see just what it was like to go on a real fast. I've been wittering away about it for quite a while now, and I've been a bit disparaging of those who try to get out of it or bend the rules, so I thought I should try and put myself into their position. So I've decided on doing this fast for two weeks. Before I start though, there's a couple of things you need to know about my own health issues. I've had now for over 10 years IBS, irritable bowel syndrome. And if it's not managed, it's just horrible. I get all bloated and I don't digest my food. I won't go into any more detail than that. I was whisked in for a biopsy of my small intestine to check for sure that I wasn't a celiac. And on the way down to my stomach with the little camera, they spotted that my esophagus was really quite badly burned from uh, stomach acid, a condition called Barrett's esophagus. Trouble was, I fell into a minority of people who couldn't actually feel the burning. Then, as it turned out, the cells of my gullet were dysplastic, in other words, about to go cancerous. So they had to be whipped out, ASAP, it was all very scary. So anyway, I was put on this low-acid diet, as well as drugs, to help me out. Uh, Many things were off-limits, or at least had to be reduced heavily. Um, Fatty foods, coffee, caffeine, fruit, onions, tomatoes, chocolate, carbonated drinks. Plus a behaviour change was needed. Eat small meals more regularly. No snacking, no eating two to three hours before bed. Slowly chewing your food. Don't take great big bites and horse it in, which I'm quite prone to do. I was also given a drug called nortriptyline for the IBS, which is actually an antidepressant. I'm not depressed myself, but it seems my intestines are. Or my depressedins, as I like to call them. I found after about ten days on this regime, my IBS got better, and three months later, my Barrett's esophagus had cleared up. Over the years, though, I've got more complacent, and I've drifted into my old ways. Hence, doing this fast. I hope it would kick me into gear, get some good results, and get some gut-healthy habits back. I wanted to be medieval in my approach to this fast, so no animal products, but fish was allowed. I was allowing myself fats, just vegetable fats, but not much, as they're very calorific, and my goal was to have around 650 calories a day, an average of what the literature seems to say medieval fasting diets were. And no constant grazing on lettuce all day either. Fasting means getting good and hungry, not just eating fewer calories. So that said, of course, we're in a modern world with lots of foods to choose from, so I was expecting to eat healthy but exciting stuff. Thai curries, dals, loads of delicious vegan world cuisine, and hopefully sharing it with you with recipes and setting Instagram on fire with my photos. I also wanted to collect some data. So I use my smart scales, and they come with a handy little app for my smartphone, and the app puts your stats on a sliding scale, and it's split into green, which is healthy, 
orange, which hmm, means you're starting to get out of shape and you're officially overweight. And red means you really need to sort yourself out, Buster. I measured weight, percentage body fat and BMI, body mass index, which is basically your weight with your height taken into account. I wanted to measure three things because if taken singly, they can be a bit misleading. For example, if you're muscular and muscle is more dense than fat, you'll weigh more and the app will think you're overweight and give you a high BMI. The percentage fat, however, really lets you see what's going on, but I'm not sure how precise it is. It seems to vary quite a lot. So therefore, I'm taking three measures together. Yeah, so I've uh, made a daily diary to chart my highs and lows, successes and failures. And listener, all are represented here. By the way, apologies for the variation in sound quality. Sometimes I have to record on the hoof on my phone mic. Oh, and there's a tiny bit of swearing too. I do drop an F-bomb at one point. Apologies for that. This is a condensed version, so you get the idea of what was going through my head for the two weeks. But first of all, we begin the day before. Okay, day minus one. Today's kind of my pancake day. I'm getting rid of all the things that are going to go off in my fridge. So I've had a nice beef casserole. uh, And I've got some butter and some milk that needs using up. I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with them yet. I might have an Ovaltine. (laughs) Because I'm a 95-year-old woman. I'm going to weigh myself on my smart scales. I have been eating a lot of cake recently. Okay, so I've put on... A kilo, last time I weighed myself. Uh, Okay, so I'm 86.8 kilograms. I'm not very happy about that. There was a time, not that long ago, I was 78 kilograms. Okay. My BMI, 26.2. I'm just in the amber. I've left the green on my BMI. Body fat, okay, not bad. Apparently 17.5. I'm in the greens. Good. Uh... Uh, oh, and it says here, <laughs> my fitness age is 43. I'm 42, so I suppose that's good. I don't really know. I'd like to be in the late 30s fitness age. Oh, well, according to the NHS website, other things that are also the same amount of fat as me, a deep-fried battered fish cake. <laughs> that's what I'm on. Hopefully, by the end of the two weeks, I'll be lower than a battered fish cake. I want to be kind of... Poached egg level, 12%. We'll see, though. Custard tart, my favourite food in the world, is 17%. I'm custard tart. Uh, Well, they do say you are what you eat, so there you go. (laughs) It's day two of the fast. I'm in my car. It is raining. I've just had to buy a load of really nice ingredients like cream and butter and eggs for a catering job I've got at the end of the week. I've had to buy myself some salt and vinegar rice cakes because they're 29 calories. And some Diet Coke in, a, in the hope it will fill me up and I don't just eat a load of things I'm not allowed because I'm terrible for that. The other thing I've done, and I'm not sure if this counts as cheating, it doesn't count as cheating. I bought some Diet Lemonade and some vodka because I like to have, at the end of the day, either a nice dessert or a glass of wine. And I can't have either because they're too calorific. Already I feel like I've got to do it and it's only day two. Diary, day five. I'm disappointed in myself, listeners, on day five, because I've broken my fast. Uh, I'll tell you all about it. 
I was doing a TV show. I'm not showing off about doing a TV show, but the thing was, we were baking cakes from our past that have been forgotten. I was talking to the public, cameras were on me, and I was required to taste the things that I'd made. I had to do it. And then, in between kind of doing takes and things like that, people were making me tea, and they just presumed I took milk, and I didn't want to be that person who says that they don't want it. I didn't want to be rude, because I'm so bloody English. <sighs> this kind of thing happens to me all the time. I've got quite a few food intolerances, and I don't like being the one with the intolerances, so everyone can roll their eyes at them. So I stay quiet, and then have the squits for three days, because that's obviously the right way to go about it, isn't it? Anyway, I didn't chuck my toys out of the pram like I usually do in these situations. I'm going to eat a whole pepperoni pizza or whatever. I dealt with it like a grown-up. I put it in a little box. And I posted it away and dealt with it. <sighs> Which actually is pretty good for me because I really do chuck my toys out of the pram. Anyway, let's try and think of something positive about this. Still in the poo territory, I have found that I can basically set my watch by what time I go to the loo. 10.15. After day three, last three days, absolutely the same time, every time. Clean break. <laughs> and too much information. Bye. Here we are. End of the first week of the fast. Sunday, of course. So that means there's been no fasting today. We're a week in. And I've got to say, I'm feeling very positive about the whole thing. I'm really surprised. First of all, I've not spent very much money on food. So it's been quite good for the bank balance. My... IBS, and I don't want to be oversharing, but it's a lot better, um, which I'm really pleased about. My Barrett's esophagus, which is the kind of burning of my esophagus that I get, which I don't actually feel. You know, so I don't know if I'm improved there. The only way we can tell that is by having a gastroscopy. But um, knowing that my stomach's having a lot of time off and not producing loads of acid has made me just feel a lot better and kind of just less worried about it. So that's been really good. Because there was no fasting today, I really thought I was going to go bonkers um, with all the things I was not allowed in the week. Um, so I had a, I had like a latte and we went out for Sunday dinner, which I just about ate and I did not have pudding. Usually, you know, I can definitely do pudding. I had some chocolates that my mum gave me and I ate them driving back from Leeds to Manchester and uh, <laughs> I ate about six, which, folks, six does not touch the sides. But I ate about six, and I thought I was going to puke. <laughs> I just didn't have room in my stomach for rich food like that. I've got a feeling that it's just that my stomach is obviously getting used to expect less going into it, and it's shrunk a little bit. The two weak links of the chain really are getting home because there's a big gap between lunch and tea or dinner if you're from the south going to bed hungry is really hard it's a hard i think it's the hardest bit mainly because it's just hard to get to sleep if if anything else so i'm feeling generally positive i know i had a bit of a whinge at the start of the week as i kind of got used to it but i'm feeling dead positive about this next week um yeah bring it on we're in the second week now 
I've had quite a tiring day today. I've lacked energy. Yeah. I'm not sure if it's to do with the fasting. I think it's more to do with the fact that I ate too much uh, rich food yesterday. But I've been dashing about. And one of the things that I kind of wanted to talk about was the food that I'm eating. I've only mentioned a few things. I expected to be doing all this amazing, vibrant, but low-calorie vegan food. But I've been so busy that uh, what I've had to do is eat on the run. And my usual kind of eating on the run dishes I have at my disposal are all stuff that I can't have. All contraband. Can't make an omelette. Can't have pasta. Too calorific. So what I've ended up doing is making a couple of kind of regular soups with a vegetable soup with a handful of lentils in or whatever. So at least there's a bit of protein. And uh, lots and lots of salad with tuna and beans on it. They've been quite good actually, but you know, it's all a bit samey. So uh, I'm a bit disappointed with myself there because I really want to kind of put my chef hat on and my not British food chef hat on because it's always British stuff, which obviously I love. It's my thing. But it's also nice to cook food from other parts of the world too. But no, never mind. I feel much less greedy at the moment. I hope I can keep it up though when the, the fasting stopped. Because I really do feel it's doing me good. Anyway, let's see what tomorrow brings. It's Tuesday of the second week. I've been doing pretty much alright. I'm doing that thing where with you just eat two or three different things and just have them on repeat. <laughs> um, but it's getting me through. If I had to do this for a whole, you know, seven weeks, I'd start getting a bit grumpy. But uh, there's light at the end of the tunnel now. I feel a little bit guilty today because I think I kind of went over my calorie count. I've I've sort of stopped counting because I know how much I'm eating because I'm essentially eating the same sort of thing every day. But yeah, I think I've gone over because... <laughs> I'm slightly embarrassed saying this. I'm sat in the room on my own being embarrassed. I'm not saying I have a problem with food in any way, but it's definitely a crutch. And I have been known to really fill my face with food. <laughs> When I'm stressed or busy or whatever, especially donuts. So I kind of did like a Lent or a fast equivalent of that. So I didn't go crazy and eat a whole pack of five donuts, which I have done in the past, folks, several times. Instead, I ate a load of... um... A load of rice cakes. <laughs> I'm not going to bed starving because I eat some rice cakes, but I'm still quite hungry. Uh, and I feel guilty and embarrassed. I've got rice cake shame. I think there's only about 19 calories in each one. <laughs> oh, I'm going delirious. I still think I'm going to be okay. I'm, I still think I would pretty much do the whole thing. I'm sure I could. I'm not going to. <laughs> but I'm sure I could. Oh, I'm going to bed. Hey kids. This is week two, Wednesday, day ten. I don't want to sound cocky or anything, but I think I've got this fasting thing down to 
uh, fine art because I have not really felt hungry today. I had a salad with a bit of tuna, a few beans, and then a little bit of salady things. No mayonnaise, no avocado. It really filled me up, so my stomach just knows not to even bother trying these days. What I thought I'd do, though, is actually cook something in real time. This has not been practiced or thought out in any way, so it may be a disaster. But I just kind of want to show that it doesn't have to be all boring food. So uh, let's see how this goes. I'm going to make a hot and sour soup. I have bubbling on my worktop, some vegetable stock. It's okay to use stock from a cube. I won't tell anyone. Now, the good thing about uh, a Thai soup, which is what I'm going to try and make, a hot and sour soup, is you can kind of use whatever is knocking around. I mean, I've got a few Thai ingredients because I like cooking Thai food. Um, I'm just going to run through them very quickly. I'm going to put them in the pot as I tell you them. So first up, into my bubbling cauldron of stock, I have a carrot, which I've cut into very thin slices. That goes. Then... Because it was there at the back of the fridge looking a little bit sad. I wouldn't normally put this in a, a Thai <laughs> soup. Some celeriac, which I have cut into julienne. Which is basically a Pontichef word for little thin bits. And that goes. I have no onions. You should be putting some nice spring onions in the Thai soup. I don't have any. So I'm going to put in a little bit of sliced leek. In that goes. A handful. There's no measurements here, guys. You don't have to worry about measurements all the time. Then, tofu. I need some protein. I can't just completely waste away. All of those vegetables and tofu are in. It just needs to come back up to a simmer. If you're cooking Thai food, this is all you need to know, folks. You need to put in sweet. I'm going to put in a little squirt of maple syrup. Maybe two teaspoons in the whole thing. I'm going to put in a very big squirt of delicious fish sauce. A couple of tablespoons, I would say. I love fish sauce. It's not to everyone's taste. You could use soy sauce. So that's sweet. We got salty. We need hot. So I have a couple of chili, chili peppers here. Chili, chili peppers. Bean sprouts would be good in here. Or those cans of... What are those things called? <laughs> ah, fuck it. We'll miss that bit out. Now we need some sour. And I have here some limes, fresh limes. So I'm going to squeeze that in. If this was a real Thai soup, we'd be uh, cutting little ribbons of uh, kaffir lime leaves and things like that. I haven't got any of those. So I'm just going to give this a little bit of a taste. I don't have any coriander. But like I say, this wasn't meant to be a proper recipe. I wasn't going to go out to the shop and buy things. It is not sour enough. You could use lemon juice if you have something like the delicious tamarind paste. That's a really good one. That's one of my favourite things. I'd run out of it. Right, I've got another lime here. So I'm, going to put, I'm just going to put the whole thing in. And the great thing about these soups is, you may have noticed, no fat was used. I'm going to put in some vermicelli noodles. 
Because they're vegan. They're not egg noodles. They're made out of um, mung beans, aren't they, I think? Oh, no, they're rice. <laughs> rice vermicelli. The clue is in the name. Anyway, I'm going to put those in. So they've just got to soften for two minutes. Let's have a go. Oh, that's nice now. Yeah, I like that. So there we go. Now, my p plan A, folks, was to do something like this every single day of the whole fast. <laughs> it's Wednesday of the second week, and it's the first one I've done. I'm such a rubbish podcaster. I do apologise. Anyway, there's one for you. It's day 11, Thursday. Well... I've had a mixed day today. I've been pretty good with the old sticking to calories. But at my workplace today, there was a lot of birthday cake. And I had a slice of birthday cake, which was calorific and obviously contained animal products. So I've had a bit of a fast fail today. But, you know, uh, I, I kind of said before, on a previous day, I think, you know, it's just such an English thing to do, not kind of to <laughs> raise something and, and feel awkward or want to stick out. So I said nothing and ate the cake. I didn't want to be the one to say, oh, I'm having a fast and sounded like a dick. Excuse my French. Um... But then I thought about what David Walker, Bishop of Manchester, was saying when I was chatting to him. And he was saying that, you know, fasting is quite a personal thing. And I realised, actually, it's not just me being English. It's actually also me just kind of wanting it to be a personal thing. And not that I didn't want to tell anyone. I mean, I guess there's a slight element of not wanting to draw attention to myself. But, um... I found the experience so far very personally gratifying. And it's not for me to kind of declare I'm doing it and kind of say I'm, uh, excuse the phrase, holier than thou about it all. So I concluded really that, you know, it's it's not a bad thing to to do it. I'm definitely having benefits. So it's all good really. That said, eating that cake meant I've Basically, had all my calories for the day by about two o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> so I've had nothing to eat since then, and it is now a quarter to ten in the evening, and I am bloody starving. So I'm going to go to bed very hungry, um, which I've been getting used to, but I'm really hungry tonight. My stomach is audibly rumbling. Tomorrow I've got a whole day in the library. So uh, we'll see how, how I uh, concentrate on that. It's the first day of writing a book. got a flipping book to write. Ugh. We'll see how I get on. <laughs> I'm not feeling very positive about it at the moment. Oh, I was so cocky yesterday. Pride comes before it fall. Oh, my stomach's going. Did you hear it? Did you hear it? <laughs> It's like, it's like my baby's kicking. My empty, vacuous baby. Ah, we got one, we got one recorded. In case you don't believe me.
It's the last fast day today, but it's the end of the last fast day today almost. It's half past eight in the evening as I speak. One thing I'm really looking forward to is weighing myself tomorrow. I wonder how much, if any, I'd be so annoyed if I put on weight. I will lose it. I'll be turning tables. I don't want to be as fat as a deep fried fish cake. Yeah, it's fine. I'm doing fine. Just try to think how I can kind of integrate these sort of rules of Lent, which is obviously doing me good, into normal life. Right, it's day 14. The scales are in front of me. So last time I weighed myself, two weeks ago, 86.8 kilos. Let's see. Let's see what I am now. Okay. I have lost weight. Wow, 82.3 kilos. That's loads. My body fat's gone from 17.5 to 16.6. That's 1%. That's pretty good. Yes, that's what, 4.3 kilos? Oh, I'm dead chuffed with that. I mean, it's probably worth pointing out, folks, that I probably haven't lost that much in fat or weight. I've got a feeling a lot of my weight when I first got on the scales was food that I still had in my stomach and food which was yet to be on its way out, if you know what I mean. So I think some of those kilos is just food. And of course, I'm not eating much food at the minute and I'm regular. You have to take a bit of a pinch of salt, but that's amazing. I'm very pleased. In fact, that takes me out of being technically overweight. Yes. So there you go. I didn't have a total breakdown, but I veered pretty close a couple of times. The word I couldn't think of, by the way, in the cook spot was bamboo shoots. Flipping egg. But it was a great experience. I've since integrated it into my daily diet. I'm having fewer calories every day, about 1,600, 1,700. And I'm allowing myself a bit of dairy and meat, but not very much. Oh, I'm having rice cakes too, of course. Actually, I've lost another kilo since I recorded it, so I'm even further into the green on my little app. And I've got much more energy. And I make sure I have a Sunday tree of pancakes and maple syrup, just to keep me on a straight and narrow path in the week. I would recommend a fast to anybody. Was it spiritual? Well, no, but it was certainly character building and I got to see firsthand the experience of what doing a fast was like. I can see why all the rule bending snuck in, that's for sure. I would imagine it would have been easier with others going through the same, everyone in the same boat and supporting each other must have been a huge help. Well, next week I'm putting my evolutionary biologist hat on to see how community events like Lent can be explained in evolutionary terms. I'll also be looking at Carlin Sunday and it's a trip to the world-famous Berry Market. There's one final bit of housekeeping, though, and that's Matthew Cobb's minnow mystery. Just how did those adult fish end up inside the duck egg? Well, keep listening after my sign-off to find out. If you have any comments, questions, or queries, please find me on Twitter, at Neil Buttery, Instagram, Dr, that's D-R, underscore Neil, underscore Buttery, or email me at neil at britishfoodhistory.com. My blog... BritishFoodHistory.com has loads of posts with recipes from Britain's past. Click on the Lent tab for more information on the things covered in this series. Cheerio folks, have a good week, and I'll see you next Sunday. The producer for this series is Bina Katani, and it's a Sonder Radio production.
This is Matthew Cobb. If you want to know the answer to the how did the fish get in the eggs mystery, which I talked about last week, the answer, I'm pretty certain, is that the egg only looked as though it was intact. So the eggs would get attacked and preyed by crows. And what we think happened was that they would the crows, the local crows. Oh, they would, did the peck little holes. They peck a little they? hole, but yeah. the hole was a bit like a trapdoor. It wasn't, there's was still a bit of membrane mm-hmm. holding it. So, what happened? The crow then ate the inside of the egg, mm-hmm. perhaps the embryo, poor little duckling got eaten, mm-hmm. and then the egg fell into the water. When, we don't know, but at some point, three minnows went through oh, the trapdoor. Perhaps in. they were quite small, yeah. and bang, the door shuts behind them. And they then grew inside it until they filled it up. So the key word was apparently intact. Oh, okay. So it did look, we got the photo we looked at with film we saw, it looked like it was intact, but that's because the shell had held together and there was this little kind of trapdoor that had shut behind the poor old minnows. They were all right, they weren't harmed, we let them go. So that person was burdened as a witch for no reason? Yeah, yeah, but it kept us warm that evening, it was great. (laughs) Some nice crackling.